I want you to take your Bibles, if you've got them with you. I want you to turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. You can find it right behind the book of 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 16. Glad you're here today. All righty. I didn't know if y'all knew this or not. Uh, we have an election coming up in the nation. I don't know if you knew this or not. Uh, I think there's been more interest in what's going on in the election this year than any time that I've been walking on the planet. And I also believe there's more angst. Y'all know what angst is? That's a fancy word for something ugly. There's more angst and anger over this election than, uh, than anyone I've ever seen before. I've heard prognosticators say this. There is more at stake in this election than any election in this generation. I don't know if that's true or not. It sort of looks like it maybe to some degree. And we have heard the pundits. We have heard the talking heads. We've heard both sides. Maybe we should hear God talk about politics and the nation. And, of course, that's why we have a Bible. Uh, you know, CNN, Fox, all that other stuff tells us what they think. But the Bible tells us what God thinks. And we're going to look today in the scriptures at taking it to the streets. We've got a lot going on in our streets today. Marching in the streets, protest. Now we've got violence in the streets. So we're going to talk about taking it to the streets from scripture today. Does, is anybody in here old enough to remember a musical group years ago called the Doobie Brothers? Anybody remember the Doobie Brothers? I didn't mean cheer for them. I just... All right, that's all you senior citizens right there. That's your Doobie Brothers. Their heyday was the 1970s. Uh, their number one best all-time selling song was Taking It to the Streets. I don't know if you knew this or not. Did, you know what word they got the name Doobie from? Well, some of you do. A doobie is a half-smoked marijuana joint. You know, once you've smoked all your pot, some of you <sighs> smoked all your pot, you dug around in your car for a doobie. That's a little, little bit left, and you'd smoke that and try to get a buzz off that. That's where they got their name from. I think it's where a lot of the music came from. And, uh, but the song Taking It to the Streets was a song about political and social upheaval and unrest. And we're mad about what's going on in the nation, so we're going to take it to the streets. We're going to go out in the streets. We're going to protest. We're going to fight. And that's where that song evolved from. So it's not new. It's not new now. We're going to look back at 2,800 years ago, the premier nation in the earth, where they took it to the streets and hear what God's Word has to say about political unrest, social unrest, and the hearts of people. Let me catch up to where we're at here. This is Israel. They're the predominant nation in the earth 2,800 years ago. They had a great king that was very loved by people. He was, uh, he was just a, a tremendous leader. He, he even was a very tall man. His name was Saul. He was the leader of that nation. He was deposed through the, through the election. There was one vote cast through an election. He was deposed and he was replaced by another national leader named David of Israel. And David became the ruler. And there was a problem in the nation after David disposed or deposed Saul. A lot of people loved Saul and they, they loved him and they were mad because David got in office. And there were a lot of people who loved David and they were loyal to David. So this created a tension in the citizenry and there was conflict between the people. And we're going to look at an incident today uh, where uh, David visited one of the cities in his nation and it, he, would, he was in a parade, you know, sort of a rally that he was at there. And I want you to see what happened on this day in 2 Samuel 16, beginning in verse 5. The Bible says this, 2 Samuel 16, 5, when King David came to Byram, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul. 2 Samuel 16, verse 5. Did I tell you the wrong place? Okay, gotcha. 2 Samuel 16, 5. King David came to Byram. There was a man from the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shemai, the son of Gerah. Coming from there, he came out cursing continually as he came. Let me pause a minute here. In the Bible, when it uses the word cursing, it don't mean use cuss words. It means to speak ugly, to criticize somebody. You got that? Because, you know, today cursing uses curse words. But back then it meant to speak down to somebody or to speak negative or ugly about them. So he's screaming at David here and he's uh, cursing continuously. came, verse 6, <clears throat> he threw stones at David at the servants of King David with all the people on, uh, on his right, mighty men on his right hand, left hand. You got the picture? Here's David. He's got his parade with him. Uh, he's got uh, his mighty men are with him. These are his soldiers. You're going to see in a minute that his, 
joint chief of operations was right beside him. The military commander was right beside him. And they're marching through this city. And here's a man who was on the opposing political side. He was angry because the, because the previous king had been deposed and they got a new leader. And so he comes out and he loses it. And he's not only angry, he starts screaming horrible things at David and he loses in a rage. He loses his control. He starts throwing rocks. So now the rage has turned into violence in the streets here. So to remind you what's going on in places in our city right now. Let's read verse seven. And Shemai said thus when he cursed, come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. Now the word bloodthirsty in the, Hebrew, in the Bible means murderer. So now he's calling the leader a murderer. Do you know what the word rogue means? You ever heard the word rogue? Talk about going rogue. Hebrew word rogue is worthless human being. So he's putting it on him. You're a murderer. You're a worthless human being. And he's screaming this at the king uh, in this public meeting here. And he said in verse 8, The Lord has brought on you all the, all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you've reigned. The Lord has delivered your kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. You're caught in your own evil. You're a bloodthirsty man. Do you, you sense some anger here? Beyond anger. We're in a rage now. All right. All right. Now listen, let me ask you a question. If you've been watching the news or reading the Bible, either one will do. If one side gets angry and they start to get violent, what does that do to the other side? Does that jack the other side up? How many of you believe, as the Bible says, that a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word provokes other people to anger? We believe that's true. All right, so now, so now you've got the king, and they're marching, got his entourage, and this guy's over here calling him every awful thing and screaming at him. How many of you think this might invoke some of David's people to anger now? All right, let's read the next verse. Read with me verse 9. Then Abishai, the son of Zerah, who is his chief of staff, said to the king, why should this dead dog talk like this to my Lord, the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. <laughs> now what you got? Right, you got somebody's lost it because their side lost the election. A leader he doesn't like and he sees nothing but evil in this current leader. And he's angry and now he's violent in the streets, which invokes violence on this side. And he's wanting to have a discussion with him after he cuts his head off. Bob, let me just throw this in for free. King or leader walking surrounded by Navy SEALs with automatic rifles and you're throwing rocks at the king. <laughs> so we know something about him now. All right. But listen to the voice of sanity. But David, the king said, what have I to do with you sons of Zerah? Let him curse. What does it mean? Let him curse. Do not touch him. We're not going to do violence here. Um, Verse 12, it may be that the Lord will look on my affliction. The Lord will repay me with good for his cursing. This day. What did David say? No, we're not, going, we're not going to respond. David here reminds me of a man from years ago named Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who said this, you never overcome evil with evil. You never overcome violence with violence. And you will never overcome hatred with hatred. And David said, I, I know that the I know the situation's very tense right now. I know emotions are running high. Put your sword up. We're not going to respond like this. And he brought some sanity into the situation there. And uh, so they're going a little bit further. Let's read one more verse, verse 13. And as David and his men went along the road in the parade there, Shemai went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, cursing the king, threw stones at him and kicked up dust. He is in a rage. You got the picture? Here's the king marching, the leader marching, people beside him. And this little man, doesn't, he doesn't just cuss him as he goes by. He runs with the king, grabbing whatever he can, throwing it at him in an absolute rage. And uh, he's bothered. I'd say he's bothered. All righty. This has been going on. This is 2,800 years ago. This has been going on forever. Now, we want to look at what's going on here, the why here. Why do people act like this? Why is there tension and division in politics and in people's lives like this? What's, what's going on here? And I want to teach you something before we even look here. Jesus teaches me and you, he teaches us this in Matthew 7, 24. Do not judge according to appearance. Don't judge by the first thing you see. Go deep. Find out what is really behind the behavior. How many of you know you can look at a situation and you can see it and you may not know what's really behind the behavior? Do y'all understand that? 
Here's a child in a school, a teenager, and they're cutting up and they're acting out. And you think it's because they're idiots. No, 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 no. There may be something that you don't know there. Do you understand what I'm saying here? There, and that's what Jesus meant when he said, don't judge things by what you see the first time. Don't judge by appearance. Find the root. What is really behind the behavior here? When I counsel people, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to hear what they got to say right off the bat. I know the first thing they say is, I need to know what is the root of your problem. And Jesus said that. Luke chapter 3, verse 9, Jesus said this. Lay the axe to the root of the tree. Deal with the problem at its root. I hear all kinds of stuff today just like you do, but somehow I sense I'm not hearing the real source of the problem. I, hear, I have people talk to me about problems, whether they're national, personal, family. They don't even know what the real problem is. What did Jesus say? Find out what the problem is. Go to the root. What is the root? Let's just take this little man right here. Why is he acting like this? Why is he in the streets protesting? Why has he resorted to violence? All right, let's look. You say, well, Brother Brian, it's easy. I know why he's out there. He, they lost the election. He didn't want this man to be the leader. He wanted the other guy to be the leader, and that's why he's acting like he's acting. And maybe there might be something deeper than that. I, I mean, why didn't, you know, if you lost the election, why didn't he just say, hey, my man lost. Maybe he'll win next time. I'm going fishing. Why is, he, why is he in the streets? Why is he so, why are people so angry? Well, there's something you don't know here. Uh, we missed it. Let me, let me help you. He, he's not upset because his man lost the election. If you remember, we read these words. A man named Shammai of the house of Saul. He was a distant relative to the previous leader. He said, oh, okay. Now I got it. Now I know why he's so mad. His uncle on his mama's side. I don't know whether he was a third cousin, a fifth nephew or what, but he was, he was a blood relative of the previous leader. You say, now, now I know why he's so upset. That makes sense now. Wait a minute. Lay the axe. There might be something deeper than that. What you can't see in here, you'd have to look somewhere else in the Bible to see this. <clears throat> what, you didn't, what it didn't show you in here is being a blood relative of the king in that day Everybody that could trace their blood to the king was on the government dime. You got a paycheck just because you were a distant relative of the king. You said, oh, now I got it. Now I know why he's so ill. He got to go get a job. He done lost his free health insurance. He done, he done lost his paycheck. He has lost his government paycheck. I'd be mad too. I see why he's upset now. Wait a minute. There might be something deeper than that. I mean, you know, you lost the election. It's a democratic society. Actually, that was a theocracy. It was a democratic society. We lost. Hey, why didn't he just say, hey, it's fun while it lasted. Got to lose. I got to go. Maybe he can get a job as a tour donkey driver or something, whatever they do back then. And I've lost my job. I've lost my money. I'm out of luck. I don't think him losing his government money is behind the anger and the violence. Jesus said, look even deeper. What is behind this kind of behavior in 800 BC and 2020. What is behind this emo this visceral rage where people square off in the streets or square off in the bedroom? What's behind this stuff? All right, I'm going to say a word here and the scripture reveals this and this word is the root of all relational destruction. Whether it's a nation, a family, a school, church a business and the bible reveals this word i'm going to show it to you and it is the it is the hellish root that bears the evil fruit that we're seeing in our nation and in our homes now and it is the word entitlement entitlement this man's not mad because his man lost the election or was displaced displaced he's not mad because he was his uncle he's not mad because he lost his check he's mad because i deserved that and you took it away from me you owe me. I deserve this. And the Bible teaches us that entitlement is the spirit. And let me tell you something. Entitlement is a spirit. There's a spirit behind it. It's also, what's the other name for the word, the spirit of entitlement? It's also called the political spirit. It's a political spirit. And it doesn't matter whether you're right, left, blue, red. If you're angry, that's a political spirit. There are issues 
And then there's the spirit behind the issues. Do you understand? It's not just about people, votes, government money. Do you understand this world is governed by a spirit realm? Do you understand that? For some reason, we read it in the Bible, but we keep forgetting. We keep forgetting this. We do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. There are spirit beings controlling the culture. And a political spirit is the spirit of entitlement. <clears throat> and the biblical revelation, here, here's, the, here's, the, here's the projection. Here it is. A spirit of entitlement always leads to bitterness and anger, sometimes violence, always bitterness and anger, which then always leads to destruction and death. That's from this passage. Remember, listen, the Bible is God showing you things. The Bible is God revealing truth to you. The spirit of entitlement always starts with an entitlement mentality. It leads to bitterness and anger, which leads to destruction. We won't read it, but you could move several years ahead. It would actually, you'd have to go over into 1 Kings chapter 2, and you'd find out that this man lost his life. He was executed by the government for the words you spoke to King David. So his entitlement attitude put him in a rage of bitterness, and it killed him. I, I see that all through culture, uh, everywhere we go. And this is, this is what is killing the land. Now, I'm going to make a statement here. And this is from Scripture. And this addresses what's going on in the nation, homes, hearts, everything. Satan sows seeds of entitlement in the human heart to destroy. Amen. Satan sows seeds of entitlement in the human heart to destroy. And if he can ever get this in a human heart, if he can ever get this into people's hearts, I deserve better than this. If he ever gets that in a heart, that is the beginning of the end. Let me show it to you. Let me just take you through some things. I, I, I did marriage counseling for years. I don't do much now. I have never seen many problems in a marriage that didn't go back to an entitlement mentality. Got in the heart. Let me give you some examples. Here's a man. <clears throat> he marries a woman that he loves. And in his mind now, he is entitled because she's his wife and he's married. He is entitled to all the free sex he wants anytime he wants it. And when he don't get what he's entitled to, then the snarky comments start and the divisiveness starts. And it is the beginning of the end if God doesn't intervene. A woman marries a man and uh, she expects him to have some sense. <laughs> and listen to these words, listen to these words, meet her needs. Honey, he don't even know what your needs are. I've done 300, I did my 376th wedding yesterday. It's getting sort of cool now for couples to write their own vows. That's cool. You just better be careful what you say. I've started asking them to let me look at them and proofread them first. <laughs> and I have stood in front of couples and said, repeat your vows to each other. And I've heard with these ears right here, right here. I've heard men look at their wives and say, say this. I promise to make all your dreams come true. <laughs> and I just holler, stop! <laughs> stop! Fool. <laughs> she might believe you. <laughs> make her dream. You won't even make the screaming bad when you get married. You're not going to make her dreams come true. So this woman gets married and she has found her white knight. He going to lead her on his steed, his noble steed to the palace. No, you're going to ride in a broke down pickup truck to a double wide. That's what the bottom line's going to be. And she goes in this marriage thinking he owes me. This man is going to meet all my emotional needs. And when he doesn't give her what she is entitled to, that's when it starts. <clears throat> in families, we have these things called teenagers. 1964, when I was a boy, uh, national survey showed the number one influence in a teenager's life was who? Their parents. Strongest influence in a teenager's life was their parents. Who was number two? Their church. 
2019, last year, surveys show who is the number one influence in a teenager's life in this nation now. The entertainment industry and public media. What is the message? What is the message being pumped into the hearts of teenagers today? Listen, teenagers today are no different than they were in my day. They're doing exactly what they've been pumped to do. What is the message being pumped today? You deserve the, not an iPhone, the newest iPhone. You don't deserve tennis shoes, no red ball jets. If some fool at school comes in with $2,000 tennis shoes, I'm next. All right? And then I'm entitled to whatever anybody's got. And then you have this disease called teenager in the house. On and on. Dear ones, the I deserve this attitude is the first root of all destructive fruit. Uh, that happens in a business. We're seeing this in businesses right now. We've seen a total reverse in the attitude of business in America in the last 40 years. To where, and now American business is having to cater to this attitude. Uh, they don't appreciate me around here. You better be careful. They don't know how hard I work. I should have gotten that promotion. Somebody is talking to you. You better look at the root behind that attitude. Because, listen, I'm going to say it again. Here's what the Bible teaches. A heart of entitlement always leads to bitterness and anger, sometimes violence, and always destroys something. Just, it doesn't matter what the situation is, all right? Take that to a nation. When you get a nation that is shifted and you get people in a nation who have been taught they owe you you deserve this it's just a matter of time until they're in the streets just like it was here and somebody's going to get killed and the and the root the root of the whole thing the root of the whole thing i'm gonna say it again satan sows seeds of entitlement in the human heart to destroy john chapter 10 verse 10 the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And I'm convinced over time his number one tool to destroy is to get into the minds and hearts of people and get them angry about what they deserve. And you get the hellish fruit that comes out of that. All right, let's shift gears. Let's go to the good stuff here. The Spirit of God wants to work in the human heart too. And by the way, he's the bigger of the two. Don't ever forget don't, don't forget by watching the news that greater is he that's in me than he that's running this world. Don't ever forget the spirit of God is greater. And the spirit of God, here's what he did. He sows things in human hearts too because God wants us, the spirit of the Bible says, Jesus said, I've come that they might have a, an abundant life. But it doesn't fall like a ripe cherry. I have to cooperate. So how does the Holy Spirit of God work in my life to bring me to where I have a great happy marriage Wonderful relationships with my kids, good health, great church. How does God work in people's lives? The Holy Spirit sows seeds in those hearts too, and they are seeds of humility and gratitude. The opposite of an entitlement spirit is gratitude. Let me tell you two things you'll never see in the same place. You will never see entitlement and gratitude in the same heart. They simply cannot exist. You've got to make a decision. What's going to flow into your heart? And this is where the, this is the root, as Jesus said, look deep. This is the root of the whole thing. I want to show you something. There's a verse in the Bible that talks about entitlement. And I want you to look at it with me. It's Romans chapter six and Romans chapter six. I got this verse years ago. It was transforming. By using this verse, I, I just, I look into lives and situations today and I say, well, here's the problem right here. Anytime somebody comes to me with a problem, especially if they're relational problems, I begin to look for that little serpent as he made his way in there. And dear ones, people, you hear the craziest things. What is the root? Years ago, a young couple, well, they weren't that young. Well, they're young compared to me, came to me for marital counseling. And I mean, they, they were, it was rough. They couldn't hardly stand each other. And I sat them down. You could, you could just feel the tension. And I said, all right, we're going to take turns. And I said, one's going to go first. The other one, do not interrupt till they're done. You'll have your turn, but don't interrupt them. Got it? We'll call a referee. Put him between y'all here. And I said, Bubba, since you're the smartest, you just told me you were. 
you go first. With my hand in the air, out of his mouth, I said, preacher, she squeezes the toothpaste from the middle of the tube instead of rolling it up like she's got some sense. I said, what? All right, now, y'all are not marital counselors, but I, I plead with you. Think, can I ask you a question? How many of you think that was the core issue? How many of you think that was the real root of the problem? How many of you that might have been some distant fruit, but that won't the root? I said, I can fix this. Here, I'm going to give you $2. You go buy her own tube. Cured. No, the toothpaste wasn't a problem. And as I began to dig and she cried and he screamed and you know what it all boiled down to? She owes me something. She's not giving it to me. He owes me something. He's not giving. I'm telling you, this is the hellish root that brings destructive fruit. But in Romans 6, 623, we find this is what the Bible teaches about entitlement. And it says this, read these words carefully. The wages of sin is death. Now, let me teach you something. The word death in the Bible there doesn't mean heart stop beating. Anytime you see the word death in the Bible, it means destruction, pain. Yes, one day the heart will stop beating and yes, you'll suffer forever. But anytime you see the word death in the Bible, it means destroy. Ruin marriages, ruin homes, ruin lands. The wages of sin is the result of sin always leads to destruction. A lot of people don't believe that. I don't see I can make it any plainer. All right, the second part says this, but the gift, the gift of God is, a, is eternal life. And that doesn't mean you live after you die. That eternal life means a wonderful life now, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, great relationships, good health. And when you fall over, you get a new body better than this one and you enjoy it forever. All right, that eternal life is a big word right there. I don't want you to notice two words in there. See the word wages. Tell me what a wage means. What I have earned. All right. If I go to work for a man at $15 an hour, I work 40 weeks at the, I mean, 40 hours in a week. At the end of that week, he comes to me and he says, he says, here, I have a gift for you. And he hands me $600. That's not a gift. I earned that. I earned it. The wage, those are wages. But if he pulls out another one and he says, it gives me what I've, my wages, what I've earned. He pulls out another check, said, here's another 600 because you did such a good job. I didn't earn that. That was a gift. Do you understand the difference between wages and a gift? And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to cut right to the chase here. And I'm going to tell you what's been written on my heart for a long time now. Nobody owes me anything. The creator of this universe, the only thing he owes me, the only one thing he owes me is a one-way ticket to the hottest corner of hell. That's all I've ever earned in my life. That's, I mean, I live like this. That's written on my heart. He don't, I preached 40 years. He don't owe me nothing. He owes me nothing. The only thing I've ever earned is destruction. Now, you're looking a little nervous about this. I'm thrilled about it. But I have been so blessed as a person. I, I got the greatest life. I got great friends. I got a great family. I got a great church. It drives me nuts. I mean, I got a great life. You know why? Because I have never lived on the entitlement side. If I get up tomorrow morning to God, be the glory. I didn't deserve that. I don't deserve the wife I've got. I don't deserve the health I enjoy. Do you have any idea how many quarter pounders with cheese I've eaten in my lifetime? <laughs> I don't deserve anything. I live 100% on the grace side. That's why my life is so blessed because I will not let Hornyhead drag me into the entitlement valley. I'm not going over there. You're not going to ruin my life. Then people should treat you better. Whoa, 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 whoa. I see you behind that bush. Listen to what 2 Corinthians 2 says. We are not ignorant of his schemes. And when these thoughts get in my head, they have no right to speak to you like that. I don't go... Dang right. Oh, no, I go, I see you back there. I know what you're trying to do. And on occasion, I'll tell him to go somewhere. I'm not going to say it in here. Go back to where you came from. And maybe you know there's somebody in the bush talking to you. One of my dear friends, he works here. He told me years ago when he was a 30-year-old detective, he and another detective had to go to Washington to testify. They had some free time, so they walked around Washington. They went to the White House. And he said, nobody was out that day. It was a Monday. 
and they've got, there's a big black wrought iron fence goes around the White House there. Got the rose garden behind it. You got that big fountain there. And he said, we're just standing there. and said, I was just going to play with him. And I said, uh, he said, we could see the Secret Service guys around the way. He said, I said to him, I believe I could jump this fence and get to that, that fountain before they could get to me. His friend said, no, you couldn't either. And you better not try it. He said, you, you wouldn't make it. He said, you don't know these people. And he said, I, I just kept, I said, I said to him, yeah, I believe I could make it. He said, all of a sudden I heard a voice in front of me say, no, you wouldn't. And right there in my face stood up out of that bush with an automatic rifle, a secret service agent. And he said, I had to explain to him, I'm picking. And I had to show him my badge and convince him I'm on your side. Dear ones, you listen to me. I love you. I'm trying to help you today. When you hear that voice in your head or in your heart, she shouldn't treat me like that. You better be careful. Somebody's putting something in your heart. Entitlement leads to anger and bitterness that leads to destruction. You better stay away from that stuff. And you need to live, as this verse says, live on the gift side of God. And we need to live on that grace side. If I have anything at all, it's the kindness of God. I, listen, nothing will protect your life more than to, uh, I came up with this saying, I just thought it up. In everything, give thanks. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Now listen to me, listen to me. He is not some overbearing ogre who demands that you dance. Let me finish that verse. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.18. In everything, give thanks. This is the will of God for you. It will protect you from the hellish pain and it will cause him to open the windows of heaven over you. Nothing will, will bless and protect your life more than a grateful spirit. All right, let me tell you what I've learned. Every morning, I don't wait till I get out of bed. It's too late then. When I wake up, first thing, I usually put my hand straight up in the air. I'll point straight up. I praise you and thank you. I get to live today. You have been good to me. I want to praise you and thank you for forgiveness and mercy and kindness and hope and confidence and courage. And I go on. Thank, I want to thank him. The first thing, it is a privilege for me to get to breathe today. It is the kindness of God. I don't deserve to live today. And the last thing I always thank him for is whole wheat toast and blueberry jam because that's where I'm headed next. <laughs> Listen, my toast is the gift of God to me. You ever heard familiarity breeds contempt? Do not let it. We've been so blessed in this nation. We have forgotten how good we've got it. And we've turned away from that gratitude. I left my house this week one morning. I went out. I stopped on the deck and I looked. And there were three vehicles sitting in the driveway. All of them were mine. I mean mine. That I could drive. Not my wife. She's gone. I got three vehicles sitting in the driveway. Now my children would point out they're all three junk. And all three of them combined couldn't buy one decent vehicle. That's fine. They run and they'll get you there. One's even got air conditioning. <laughs> and I sat there and I just stared at him and I began to thank God for my three vehicles. We've got problems in this nation, but I'm going to this nation's been good to me. Let me tell you, I sat there and I thanked God for those vehicles. And I thought back to some time back when I got a video from Africa. We, we help pastors in Africa who pastor, they don't pastor churches like this, they don't pastor large churches. They walk from village to village to take care of little tiny churchettes, 15, 20 people maybe, and they walk there, they preach and teach under trees, and, and they walk those dusty hot roads in 100 degree heat to help those people. And our church buys them bicycles. If we can get them to them, we buy them bicycles to make their lives a little easier. And I got a video, a missionary sent it to me, got this video. And he, this uh, pastor in Africa had just gotten his bicycle. He's standing there, he's holding it. And this, this missionary is videoing him and he's telling me what he's saying. And this man is standing there just weeping, tears running down his face, thanking God, I've got a bicycle now. I, I, this will make my life so much better. Thank you, pastor. Thank you for my bicycle. Familiarity has bred such contempt in this nation. For the blessing we've had, we have forgotten to give thanks for what we do have. This nation's been good to me. And we need to be a people who get up thankful. The last thing my sweetheart and I do every night before we go to sleep, I hug her and I pray and I thank God that I got to live today. I thank him for her. She needs to hear it. We thank him for the children. Children are a gift from God. 
I thank him we had something to eat, thank him for our friends. I just thank him for thanking him to thank him. And I thank him. And I do it all day long. Dear ones, nothing will open the windows of heaven over your life more than a grateful spirit. It will protect you from the hellish seeds that destroy. I'm telling you, live there. Let me take just a minute before we dismiss. And let me talk to you about America the beautiful. I love this nation. We got some problems. Say amen. We got some problems. So has every nation in world history. Always will be, always has been. I'm not saying we should not get involved in the process. You need to be engaged. Don't believe the first thing you hear. Dig. Find the issues. Vote. Get engaged. But you listen to me carefully. There's a big difference between being engaged and being enraged. Engagement is from God. Enragement is from hell. All right. Let me tell you something about my nation. I don't know that you can... You know, we're a little struggling with history in this nation. We don't have much history. We're a young nation. But the history books they tell me today may not. Let me tell you what you can't get out of history books. You can't glean from a history book the spirit of a nation's history. There's only one place you can get that from. You have to go to the Smithsonian. And you have to read the writings of our early fathers and our early leaders. And I've collected a number of those. And let me tell you what I've learned by reading uh, Washington, uh, Adams, Jefferson, all the way up to Mr. Lincoln, there was a spirit of humility and gratitude that permeated this nation for years. They just, this nation was not founded on freedom primarily. It was founded on the freedom to worship freely because people came over here. They didn't want to have to worship the way the Anglican church told them to under a despot king. They wanted a place where they could worship the way God wanted them to and let them to. That's the founding. You may not like it, but you can't deny that. But there was a spirit of gratitude and humility that permeated every corner of this nation at one time. When you read those early writings, when on the first ever presidential inauguration, Mr. Washington, I don't know if you remember this or not. Well, I mean, you probably weren't there. I don't know if you remember it or not. <laughs> Our capital is not in Washington, D.C. Somebody tell me where it was at. New York City. And Mr. Washington was sworn in as president, the first president ever, Senate was sworn in, Congress sworn in, and immediately after being sworn in, they walked a quarter mile down to a little church called St. Mark's Church there in New York City, and every one of them got on their knees. And Mr. Washington led in prayer and thanked God for this nation and declared before him, we know that unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. And we are grateful for the opportunity and we beseech your blessings. And that spirit of gratitude and humility that God has shed his grace on thee, carried this nation for years and years. But somewhere along the way in this nation, we've had a total heart change, not in the issues, but in the heart. Let me tell you something. The heart of the matter is always this matter of the heart. It's always the heart. We've had a change of heart. Some, some uh, historians put the finger down in the 1960s. But something changed in this nation in the 1960s or something began to change. I believe I would agree with that. From what I've read, I would agree with that. Let me give you one piece of evidence. Uh, 1961, we elected a president. He was young. He was good looking. He was dashing. Everybody loved him. Even if you disagreed with him, most people liked him. He was a Democrat and uh, he, he became the president. You remember his name? John Kennedy. John Kennedy was, went into office in 1961 and uh, he was a great leader. He didn't finish out his term. It was November 22, 1963, when he was shot and killed. A man pointed a hunting rifle out the window of the Texas School Book Depository. He was riding in the back of a car beside Governor John Connolly, and he was shot and killed that day. But he delivered perhaps one of the greatest inauguration speeches in 1961, January. And in his speech, he, he talked about this is the heart of America. This is the heart of this nation. And he captured the whole, everything he ran on, everything he stood for, and that whole speech, he wrapped it up in one phrase at the end of that speech. Perhaps you've heard it before when he said, my fellow Americans, let us not ask what our country can do for us. Let us ask, what can I do for my country? That was the heart of a nation. I am blessed to be here. It's not about what I can get. It's what can I give back to this nation that has given me so much. And he won the presidency on that attitude. And somewhere between that day in 1961 and today, we have had a complete shift of attitude in the nation. And uh, I want to say this about 
the concern. A lot of people are concerned about our future as a nation. I'll just say this about whether it's your marriage, your business, or your nation. From Scripture, you show me the root, I'll tell you the fruit. You let me look in your heart, and I do this talking to people. You let me look in your heart. If I see an angry entitlement, get all I can, they owe me spirit, I know your future. And it is not good, according to Scripture. But if I look into your heart, I don't care who's against you. I don't care how rough you've had it. And I see, I am just grateful to be alive. God has been good to me and I'm trusting him. I know your future. <clears throat> you can go back and read if you want to again. But do you remember when the opposing political party wanted to kill him and now his chief of staff wants to kill that crowd over there and they're fixing to war in the streets? King David said, no, no violence. He said, perhaps God will look on me. He is the man that God has blessed more than any other man, I believe, in world history. Let me tell you why. The answer is found in a prayer he prayed after he was made king. He went into the church, the temple, by himself, got on his knees, and he prayed this prayer. Oh, God, who am I and what is my house that you have brought me this far? I deserve none of your blessings, but you've shown mercy to me. What do you hear? I don't hear you owe me, God. I hear you owe me nothing, but you've been good to me. I hear humility and gratitude. Dear ones, connect the dots. All through the Bible, connect the dots where you see humility and gratitude. Watch and see if the windows of heaven aren't poured out on that house, that marriage, that house, that nation. And where you see, and I could take you and show you many other people in here besides Shammai, where you see God owes me something. People owe me something. It's always a sad ending. This is not hard. I want to quit with a warning, with a prophetic word of warning to you. I want you to turn to Proverbs chapter 4. Our Father has a word for you. Proverbs chapter 4. In Proverbs chapter 4, this is a, uh, this is a simple word from God. It's a prophetic warning. And it sort of stands against the tide of what, it, what people are saying in our nation today. I'm going to cut to the chase. Your future is not dictated by your education. There's nothing wrong with an education. I, I believe you should study and learn all your life. Your future is not dictated by your wealth. You can lose wealth or you can make it. Your future is not dictated by your past. Praise God. My future isn't determined by my past. What is the one thing the Bible says that will dictate your future more than anything else? It's found in this prophetic warning in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Guard your heart. Carefully, guard your heart with all diligence. Now watch these words. For out of it come all the issues of life. Let me look in your heart. I'll tell you your future. Don't let, I don't want to look in your wallet. I, want to, I don't want to look at the degrees on your wall. I don't want to look at the opportunities. Let me look at your heart. I'll tell you your future. The, and what does the Bible say? The Bible teaches us two things here. Number one, the condition of your heart will determine your future. God raises one up and puts one down. Let me remind you of those of you that are nervous about what's going on. Let me remind you of this verse from Daniel. God rules in the affairs of men. In the day that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up on his throne. I think we should be engaged. You need to vote. You need to study. But you need to see God high and lifted up on his throne. He rules. But what does the Bible tell me you do right here? Do you, do you hear a nervous word in there? Son, son, guard your heart. Why would he tell me to guard my heart? Sound to me like somebody's trying to hurt it. He said, you guard your heart. When you sense the enemy of your soul trying to sow seeds in there of destruction, do not let him in. Don't receive it. When a slick-talking politician promises you he can get you something, ask him, this is not about me. What does the scripture say right here? You protect your heart. If you'll protect your heart, listen to me. There's nothing wrong with the boat being in the water. Get in the marketplace. Get in politics. Get involved. When does the trouble start? When the water gets in the boat. Are you with me? There's nothing wrong with being in this world. Do not let the spirit of this world get in your heart. When that spirit gets in there, we're in trouble. And you need to protect your heart and guard it. 
from what's going on in the land today. You need to guard your heart. <clears throat> All righty. I'm old. I got a little bit of a future. Some of y'all got a lot of a future. I love kids. I'd spend the rest of my life helping young people. I love young people. I think we need to, us old folks need to get off the dime and get with it and turn our hearts toward young people. Can I get a witness? That generation's got a lot to lose. So we need to pay attention to them. And so often I want to help young people and say, uh, no more lies. Let's believe the truth. Dear ones, he rules in the affairs of men. He raises one up. He puts one down. And you guard your heart. This is the prophetic word from the Father. Can you hear what he's saying? I want to be good to you. I want to protect you, but you've got to make a decision. And I want us to decide right now, gratitude, humility from daylight to dark will be what's in my heart. And I want you to smell the enemy when he comes out there. All right, I think I've told you this before, but at this age, you're free to repeat yourself. We have a problem with skunks down near our farm out there. Our, I never saw a skunk anywhere around here for years and years. And I think I'm, the Russians sent them. I know the Russians sent them. <laughs> I'm convinced of it. I get blamed for everything else. And uh, a lot of times the, we, we have skunks around. A lot of times I can just walk out there and I can know that I can know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, there's a skunk around here somewhere. And you say, well, you don't see him. No, I don't see him. But I can tell by the smell from hell that all ain't well. I know he's here. <laughs> I, I, I can smell him. I know he's here. Now I just got to find where he's at. Then listen to me. I have never seen Satan one time in my life. Oh, I have seen his activity. But I've never seen him personally. But let me tell you something. When I smell this in my mind or in my heart, they got no right to treat you like that. Oh, I can tell by the smell of those words that he is here and he's trying to start something in me that'll ruin my marriage, my family, my life. And I usually tell him to go right back where you came from. When you smell entitlement, you just need to realize he's there. All right, let me tell you how to live and then I'm done. Listen, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm gonna tell you how to live. I'm gonna make a slight suggestion. <laughs> he owes me nothing. If I walk off this stage today and my elders are waiting back there and they say to me, and I'm going to teach you something here, and they say to me, thank you, but we're, we're done with you. We believe somebody else could do better. You're terminated. You don't need to come back. I would not start crying. God is my witness. I wouldn't start crying in a moment. I wouldn't get on social media and light this place up and do all the damage I could. I would say, praise God. I didn't deserve it anyway. It's been his blessing to be here. And I would say to them, don't tell people you fired me. Let me get up there and say, God has called me somewhere else and let me leave this place blessed. Because you know what? If you do that, he has called me someplace else. I am not going to let anger get in my heart over anything that happens to me. I didn't deserve it anyway. I deserve nothing. If I go home today and the wife that I love with all my heart packs up and leaves, I'm not going to fume. I didn't deserve her to start with. She is God's gift to me. Everything I had is, listen, if you'll stay on the grace side of God, he'll keep it coming. But if you ever get on the anger side, I deserve better than this. Friend, you're one heartbeat away from trouble. Do not let him sow that in your heart. How about we thankful our way all the way to glory? Oh, Jesus, we praise you. Now we're going to pause. This is the day where all over the land people are praying for our nation. I love this nation. Imperfect as it is, struggling as it is, you have blessed me with this land. I could raise my children any way I wanted to because I live here. I can preach anything I want to say. Nobody's going to shoot me for saying it. The government won't. I've got an opportunity. I thank you. Amidst our problems, we pray for our nation. I have no idea what the future holds. You do not hold our future. Your word's very clear. We hold our future by the way we deal with you. And I can't change the nation, but I know this. As for me and my house, I do control one man. And you as my witness for the rest of my life, every morning I'll wake up and say, this is the day the Lord has made. And thank you, praise you that I get to live today. Thank you for a home. Thank you for a family. Thank you for health. Thank you for something. I'm going to live my life thanking you for the grace of God that's been poured out. Protect me, oh God, from that complaining, moaning, entitlement mentality that brings destruction into our house. I trust you for that. 
but I do pray for this nation. This nation had a key assignment from you in the well-being of the world. No nation has ever paid for more hospitals, fed more hungry children, protected more people from the death of tyrants than this nation. You have used this land. It had a key role in your plans for this globe right here. And you've blessed us. I humbly, humbly, humbly ask you, as you showed mercy, mercy on Nineveh and said, should I not be kind to these blind people who do not know their right hand from their left? And you poured out mercy on that wicked people. Because as you said in that book, the Lord is gracious, full of compassion, slow to anger, great in mercy, good to all. So we humble ourselves before heaven and appeal to you, have mercy on us. I praise you and thank you today that your kindness is greater than our blindness and your goodness is still greater than our sin. We don't stand a chance without the intervention of God in this land. Father, our hope doesn't come from Republican or Democrat. It's not on Capitol Hill. It comes from Calvary's Hill. And we look to you and we do only th the only thing we know to do. And that is to, since we're your people, humble ourselves, turn from our wicked ways, seek your face, and call on heaven. Thank you for the goodness of God. I don't think you want to judge this nation. I thank you, Father, according to your word, just as a brokenhearted parent longs for a rebel son to come home, you long for this land to turn back to you. I humbly ask you, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in this land. People are crying out to you all over this nation that the mighty hand of God would intervene. Not that my side would win or that we'd have more money, but that the kingdom would come and righteousness would spring forth in this nation, truly from you, that this would be one nation undivided with liberty and justice for all the way you meant it to be. We can't do it. Both sides have proven they can't pull it off. You, oh God, are able. And we beseech you humbly from heaven, just one little small church in a little out of the way corner of the world cries out to heaven. But I praise you and thank you the great heart of God, when you said over that evil land of Sodom and Gomorrah, find me five men that will pray in righteousness, I will spare the land. Here we are. Thank you for your goodness. And I want to praise you and thank you for the kindness you've shown. Not a one of us in this room had not been blessed beyond measure by the grace of God. And we are grateful forever for your goodness. We love you and praise you for the goodness of God in our lives. In his blessed name we pray. Amen.